in Los Angeles and community radio station WMNF in Tampa, Florida. Producers are Katamesta Simbaruso and Monica Lopez. Our headlines editors are Nell Abram and Randy Zimmerman. Our DC editor is Mitch Jesserich. Technical producers are Jade Paget-Seekins, Lindsay Benedict, Pauline Bartolone and Mick Million. We have web support from Vanessa Tate and Leslie Holmes. FSRN is a worker-run collective. For more information, you can visit our website at www.fsrn.org. In New York, I'm Deepa Fernandez. Please join us this Wednesday, January 28th, from 3.30 to 7.30 p.m. for a live broadcast of the FCC Localism Task Force public hearing in San Antonio, Texas. This is presented on these airwaves by KPFT in Houston. Presiding will be the one and only chair of the FCC, Michael Powell. There promises to be a hot public comment section, and then obviously the key phrase is multiple ownership of stations. That's this Wednesday from 3.30 to 7.30 p.m. here on KPFA and KPFT. Please join us. The ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadow out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is January the 27th, 2004. It's raining here in Berkeley, yes, as I waited for the bus on my way down here to KPFA. I saw a young man talking to the universe. He was out in front of the South Berkeley Branch Library addressing the cosmos. I looked around and I thought, well, I thought that it might be that the cosmos wasn't listening and then I thought perhaps I was wrong about that. Perhaps uh, perhaps my listening was enough. Uh, it occurred to me how necessary it is for each one of us to have someone on the receiving end, someone to listen and how fortunate, how very fortunate that I am to have had... Um, this microphone, these airwaves, surely I would have gone mad years ago without KPFA, without this uh, outlet, as they call it, yes. For all the rants, the rants and raves, without all those listeners who hear me, who hear me well enough to give me feedback, a word I've always loathed. It always sounds like feedback or something. I feel like a horse, but you know what I mean. All those of you who take a moment and call or write and um, just um, stop me on the street and say hi. I think I mentioned one time 
um, last week, I, I was in, believe it or not, the Dallas airport. And a woman there, we were having a big argument over who was going to get on the plane first. And a woman there recognized my voice. She obviously was on her way to Oakland and was a resident of uh, uh, the Bay Area. But I thought, you know, this is privilege to have that much of a voice in the world. Uh, it's funny, I've been thinking that over all these years, if our memory is useful to us at all, it is to remember all those with whom we communed. Is that the word? With whom we exchanged thoughts. Let's be more direct. All those whom we loved and who loved us. Who, what is the word? Uh, Yeats. Yeats. Um, he said, who loved the pilgrim soul in us. I want to start today with that wonderful poem by W.B. Yeats about uh, loving the pilgrim soul. I... I try to do that, especially um, with young people. I, I'm never sure. I'm afraid that I'm being a school teacher, scolding them for what they don't know, when, of course, that's nonsense. Uh, they know much more than I will ever know, and they're further ahead. They were born later. W.B. Yeats wrote, When you are old and gray and full of sleep and nodding by the fire, take down this book and slowly read. And dream of the soft look your eyes had once, and of their shadows deep, how many loved your moments of glad grace, and loved your beauty, with love false or true. But one man loved the pilgrim soul in you, and loved the sorrows of your changing face. And bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly how love fled and paced upon the mountains overhead and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. Yes, indeed. If you think carefully, you will probably remember, if you are one of the lucky ones, I'm sure you will remember the individuals who did love the pilgrim soul in you, who um, cared about what you were becoming, what your possibilities were, and not uh, all the little things, of course, that are wrong with each and every one of us. Yes, we tire some people in the chattering classes who never get enough of ourselves. <laughs> yes, I was trying to explain to a dear old pal last night on the telephone why the new show on cable television, The L Word, was progressive. It's a show all about lesbians. And Pam Greer is in it. That's reason enough to watch it. Uh, it's sex in the city, but it's been um, promoted. Yes, they've been promoted from just ordinary sex addicts to lesbian sex addicts and lesbian lifestyles. And it's a little bit literary, a little bit more literary than sex in the city. All Sex in the City had was a central character who wrote a sex column for a New York newspaper. Um, these young women in the show, The L Word, they have a, a coffee house called The Planet. And there they meet and there they talk. Uh, there isn't much to it yet, but check it out, see what you think. And if you think it's completely shallow, uh, 
if you think that there is, you know, that the depth of the shallowness in the show is uh, more than you can bear, send me a note to that effect. Uh, <laughs> check out, yes, the the uh, L word. Today I need to talk quickly about two movies. Uh, one is called The Monster and the other is called The Fog of War. And uh, I was thinking uh, last night how curious it is that uh, these two films, they've just opened up and, oh, yes, here we have the state terrorism of McNamara and the uh, psychic terrorism of Eileen Huernos, the so-called female serial killer. Take your pick, folks, take your pick. Uh, I opened my New Yorker, and there's a picture of a naked actor. 26 January issue, right. We have the beautiful face and body of uh, Charlize Theron. She's a dancer. As she plays Eileen Huernos in Monster. Richard Avedon did the photo. She's a work of art in this picture with a face of porcelain. She's just, uh, oh, um, she's, uh, what is the word for that? Um, piquant. She's so pretty. She shows just a little evidence of the weight that she had to gain for this role uh, in The Monster. But when she got on stage at the Golden Globes, Sunday night, um, she was almost back to the willowy uh, beauty. Uh, she had this sort of yellow dress that looked like it was uh, leaves falling off a tree, you know. She was all flushed with her success. Uh, so cheerful to see. She has obviously very low borders. Apparently this woman has had a horrendous life. The actress herself uh, has witnessed violence and uh, pretty much uh, knows what it is to live on the emotional edge. Uh, obviously, she's hit the big time. Uh, they uh, made her endure hours of makeup to uh, achieve this transmigration, transmorphosis. I don't know what you call it. It's a physical and psychological miracle. Uh, I couldn't believe the... Um, uh, the way in which they made her look like the original, the actual Eileen Huernos. I thought of Robert De Niro in Raging Bull, you know, what he went through to look like the boxer Jake LaMotta. Uh, anyway, some people have compared the movie Monster to the film Boys Don't Cry. That's one in which Hillary Swank transmutes into a boy. But in spite of the parallels... Um, this role, the role of the monster, Eileen Huernos, uh, is a tour de force. I've never seen anything quite like it, and uh, I've been going to the movies for more than half a century. Uh, I sat in the theater watching the film, and uh, I thought of the film The Fog of War. Nice double bill that would make, the one about Robert McNamara, his spin on the Vietnam War, you know. And I thought... Monster is such a strange word. Linguistics is always the key. Oh, what do we mean by a monster? Words create the world. That is, they create the known world, the talking world. 
Eileen Huernos was apparently a brain-damaged child, a woman who survived as a prostitute. She was executed by the state of Florida in uh, October 2002. Uh, she murdered, uh, I don't know, half a dozen of her tricks, Johns, whatever. McNamara's murders are without number. He states in the film The Fog of War that uh, some people <laughs> think I'm a son of a bitch. When asked how he feels about his crimes, his uh, historic uh, choices, he shies away, he says, um, that answering questions like that, um, it's inflammatory, gets him in trouble, that sort of thing. So then he's asked if that means uh, the choice is damned if you do and damned if you don't. He says, yeah, but he'd rather he'd rather choose damned if you don't. Okay, he gets a choice. Eileen Huernos can't play those games. She seems to be um, a creature almost without choices. There is an argument made at one point in the film that damaged people can choose to survive. In her case, it appears that she has almost no impulse control. Uh, there's no way she can handle life uh, on her own. She has a history of hideous, horrific abuse, and she's more or less like um, a vicious dog, you know, a dog who has been kicked once too often. Something snaps. Um, there is a documentary about Eileen Huernos. It's Dick Broomfield's Life and Death of a Serial Killer. Uh, highly recommended. Apparently, it's coming to the um, uh, big screens. I saw it uh, almost a year ago. It was made not long before Eileen's execution. She was on death row for 12 years, and... Uh, I guess, you know, some people would say that the documentary shows that she is redemptive, that she was able to reflect back on her behavior, to become conscious. There's Christian conversion. Any number of people seem to feel that this woman should not be uh, put down like a dog. Uh, still, if you look at her closely, uh, if you watch... Her body language is quite visibly insane. You might check David Denby's review. That's the one next to the picture in the 26th January New Yorker. It details both the documentary and the dramatic film. Um, what surprised me or startled me about this movie was that while the violence was explicit, don't take the children for God's sakes, uh, the only thing that startled me or scared me a little bit was a car crash. Um, Eileen's lover, Selby, played by Christina Ricci, is frightened, drives off the road at one point. Uh, but the scenes in which we see Eileen tortured, raped, um, driven to murder, uh, that's the first time she kills. She's uh, horribly uh, tortured. It's a sickening scene, but somehow it's not gratuitous. It's very difficult to show sadism, violence, without promoting it. I think it takes a very special sensibility on the part of the filmmaker. Um, I think we've argued about this for years and years because we know that somewhere somebody's getting off on this horrible stuff. The movie's director, 
Patty Jenkins um, is the woman shown in Avedon's photo in The New Yorker. She's standing next to uh, the actress, and she is the observer. She's the, the seeing eye, looking at her raw material, this naked and very pretty actress, Charlize Theron, contemplating perhaps how to turn the actor into the raw meat that is needed for this performance. Um, I wish it had been possible to do a double feature. It might have been too much for people to take, but, you know, put the documentary film of Eileen Huernos up next to this um, feature film, show the woman as she actually was when she was alive and facing death in the uh, Florida prison, and then the actress... uh, this actress it reveals the humanity behind the insanity. Now, this is what interests me. David Denby says that uh, this is one instance in which art clearly trumps documentary truth. I don't know about that. Uh, he writes, The real Huernos is too will-driven to show us more than one side of herself. In the end, you need a sane person and an artist to bring out the humanity in a crazy person. That's the end of the quote. Um, like David Denby, I think that Charlize Theron deserves this year's Oscar for her performance, but I also think that we should look for truth, we should search for the truth from facts as well, without the documentary. Um, this movie would have less power for me, um, I think that I can say that I read Wernos, the real woman, um, or maybe I imagined it. I I saw her struggling to dignify her existence uh, in the face of death. She, of course, she was using all of the Jesus talk, things like that. But uh, I never saw such a portrait of uh, despair. She was trying to rise up out of this humiliation. Uh, she failed, of course, but unlike Robert McNamara, she she was uh, desperate in her heartfelt effort to make the world understand her. Uh, she was a woman who did try to love. She found the passive uh, Selby, this woman, lover, companion. She did anything and everything to keep this woman with her. Uh, she was desperate for money always to support Selby. Uh, the Actually, the review uh, is unkind to Christina Ricci. Um, yes, a lower middle class girl. Um, the review says that the performance is foreshortened at times. Selby seems not so much needy as infantile and petulant, and I would say exactly. Uh, Selby Selby had no depth. She was just someone that uh, Eileen could love. And when Selby betrays her, that is after the police close in and they they have uh, Selby there, uh, Eileen forgives her completely. She says that she was manipulated and controlled by the cops and so forth, and she insists that Selby was innocent of any crimes. Uh, She was, as they say, big about it. Um, She acted the man. 
The question, of course, is whether Eileen Huernos deserved death. It would seem to me she was living, she was a living death. In any case, I would vote no. No need to physically kill her. That like any other disturbed animal, she needed to be under lock and key, perhaps. Of course, after she had killed a cop, he was a, a trick, actually, but uh, after that her fate was sealed. She inspired terror in the hearts of men. As we know, she was violent, I think, of picture of Judy Berry once, little tiny Judy Berry with a gun in her hands. That was enough for the guys. Um, this aspect of the Werno story is not dealt with in the film, the fact that she inspired terror that she is an archetype of the fury um, you know guilty males who are afraid of uh, the feminine there's no party line feminism in the movie at all uh, we know that a woman out of control <laughs> is the very devil and D.H. Uh, yeah, Lawrence wrote that this one of course demanded to be exterminated there's not a shred of feminine appeal uh, no supplication, nothing about her, not a glimmer of glamour, nothing but savage rage. And underneath it all, this shattered soul, there's one scene when she's washing and getting herself together in the bathroom, in the toilet, uh, and uh, uh, putting hairspray on and trying to make her uh, mottled complexion look nice uh, when she goes to meet her lover. Selby, that, uh, actually that was the one moment when I teared up a little bit. The movie does give the actress, the uh, script gives the actress a moment of insight into the larger picture. Um, the um, director actually wrote this script. Uh, what is her name again? Patty Jenkins, right? She's the writer and director. And she put in, she couldn't resist putting in, um, a couple of passages uh, about politics. Selby has discovered that Eileen is a killer, and uh, she protests, cries, and so forth. And uh, Eileen Huernos, the character Eileen, refers this passive little woman to the realities we face in this world. That is, she says, to politics. Of course, she says, men kill. It's nothing out of the ordinary. They kill every day in every way. And she might have gone on to say that it's just a matter of amateurs or professionals, you know, petty criminals or organized syndicates. The lone killers are the state terrorists. Robert McNamara is legit. He is a legitimate killer. That's all. You remember the little moment of revelation that some of us had in the 70s when Michael Corleone in The Godfather is talking to his uh, girlfriend, Diane Keaton, and he's trying to persuade her, you know, that his family's going to go legit and so forth. And uh, uh, she, she tells him he's naive uh, because he says that uh, senators and... Uh, uh, presidents don't have people killed. <laughs> he said, who's naive, dear? Anyway, the state, as we know, is the biggest big daddy of them all. Primate hierarchies are as old as civilization. I guess that's what civilization means. Uh, of course, the veneer of civilization grows thinner and thinner now in the 21st century. 
Uh, we see these underdogs, uh, usually just the poor, uh, often the women, symbolically the women and children. Um, it's a pecking order that most people call reality. I looked up reality the other day, my passion for linguistics, yes, the real. And there's so many definitions, it just, you know, gets kind of... This kind of gets, um, uh, goes into a vacuum, but actually what it comes down to is that the real is the coin of the realm. That is to say, uh, it's gold, yes, reality, the real, coin of the realm, the money. As Ginsburg, Allen Ginsburg would say, yes, Moloch, the great god Moloch is the ruler of all, uh, I don't know, I, I go to the movies trying to live in a fantasy world, the, the sort of world in which all this suffering has meaning. Uh, I'm not sure in real life whether it has any significance. Uh, I like to imagine that there are these special poems that sort of uh, come out of the pain, ease the ache. Looking at Denby's review, he said something that I like very much, and I hope it's all true. It's He discusses Patty Jenkins, the writer-director of this movie, and uh, he, he says that she works in a plain, straightforward way. She concentrates on the emotional connection between the two women, that is, uh, Selby and Eileen Huernos. Their arguments, uh, reconciliations, lovemaking, and then the increasing dread they both feel as Wernos goes wild. Uh, her emotional attentiveness makes one wonder, could a new generation of female directors pull at least part of our movie culture away from the frantic digital spectacle and he goes on to mention Sofia Coppola, whose movie Lost in Translation uh, just won the Golden Globe. Uh, well, S Sofia won the Screenwriters uh, uh, Award. And best of all, Sofia Coppola is the first American woman to win a Golden Globe as a director. Startled everyone, I must say. Uh, I jumped up out of my seat. I thought, my goodness, a chick flick. No Americans up to now. Let's see. Earlier women. Jane Campion for Piano. Won an Oscar, I think. Lena Wertmuller for Seven Beauties. But if Sofia Coppola goes on to win the Oscar, aha, uh -huh, no way. That will be something new on the horizon, folks. Uh, something new to get excited about. She was <laughs> so... So what's the word? Uh, uh, offbeat, down. Uh, she was very low-key, Sophia Coppola. She got up to to get her award, and she sort of sighed as if it was too much effort, and she started to thank people, and then she said, Oh, well, I'll, I'll thank all the rest of those after we get off the air, you know. She said, Honestly, I will, but let's just get on with this show here. And I thought, uh, as opposed to... Charlize, the woman who won for Monster. Sophia is jaded. She's almost an elder. She's the daughter, of course, of uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And I think that her, what is it, her angst, her weariness may come from the fact that the uh, 
film industry crucified her for trying to play one of the leading roles in Godfather Three. I thought she was pretty good. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll be on the air again、uh, next week at this same time, three thirty. Off on、um, uh, February the let's see during during the marathon I won't be on the morning show but I'll be here at three thirty. Until then, next Tuesday go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Been an assumption that it's just fine and dandy to run a green presidential candidate in 2004, and、I'm, I imagine we will hear that from Peter Camejo on these airways. I think that that is out of touch with reality. The Democrats and Republicans are all part of one system. The Democrats make the Republicans possible. There is nothing George Bush has done that he could have done if the Democratic Party had really opposed him. Democrats and Republicans are attacking our our way of life, our Constitution. It has to be opposed. If those voices are silenced, as Norman Solomon wants to silence them, that will make it easier for George Bush to get reelected. He's got it exactly backward, in my opinion. Peter Camejo, 2003 California gubernatorial candidate, and Norman Solomon, director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, in debate. Should the Greens run a candidate for president in 2004? Live from the Crest Theater in Sacramento on Thursday, January 29th. Produced by KVMR FM and Left Coast Radio, and broadcast on your community radio station. KPFA 94.1 FM this Thursday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Please join us.